This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19. New York City's uh, COVID-19 hospitalizations, Tim, rising to their highest rate since May. U.S. reporting a record 3,844 deaths from COVID. Confirmed cases globally climbing by an all-time high, more than 776,000 to more than... uh, 87 million. You know, this COVID, the, the record number of deaths yesterday was absolutely overshadowed by what happened in the nation's capital. Right. But we can't forget we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and it's changed the way that we work and live. Right. I mean, politics obviously front and center, but absolutely like none of a, none of this gets back to normal until we get the health pandemic uh, under control. Let's see what our next guest has to say about all of this. Dr. Chris Byer is professor of public health and human rights, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, senior scientific liaison at the COVID Vaccine Prevention Network. And the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, Dr. Byron on the phone from Baltimore. Dr. Byron, nice to have you here with us. Uh, yeah, it was easy for the virus to get overshadowed uh, yesterday because of all the political news, but this is not good. We are at another surge uh, and it continues to be that way. Do you think we are getting near the worst or that's in the weeks to come? Well, Carol, uh, good to be with you again. I'm afraid to say I think we're still seeing rising cases. And, of course, as you noted yesterday, uh, a tumultuous day for our country, but also a record for COVID deaths uh, in the country. Um, And we are expecting still, as as we had predicted, uh, the post-holiday season surge to continue. Um, We're in this very, very challenging moment where we do have a way forward, and that, of course, is the COVID vaccines that have emergency use uh, authorization now. Uh, But we're not going to be able to immunize enough people to start to really blunt this curve. And and the next few weeks and and probably well into uh, February uh, are going to be enormously challenging. You say we're not going to be able to, you say, doctor, we're not going to be able to immunize enough people. Do you mean in the next few weeks? Do you mean this year? I mean to blunt this current enormous wave. So how will we see this wave go down? Well, uh, first of all, I think we have to stick to the basics, right? Um, We have to really continue with mask wearing, with social distancing, with hand washing. As hard as it is to stay vigilant, uh, people are going to have to try and do that. Uh, We do need to ramp up uh, both manufacture and distribution of the two uh, approved vaccines we have. And, of course, we have more vaccines in the pipeline. But as I'm sure you know, uh, we we really had a slow start to the immunization programs, and a number of the states have really faced challenges. Yeah, the bottleneck is not in the manufacturing of these right now. The bottleneck is in the distribution. We have a Bloomberg vaccine tracker, and it shows uh, that a very small portion relative to the number of vaccines that have been distributed have actually been shot into the arms of people. That's right, Tim. That's absolutely right. And it's it's uh, it's an enormous um, tragedy, really. So, Dr. Byer, you know, this is interesting because we've talked about this a lot at home, too, about, you know, we saw this with the November election where you had sports teams, you know, step up and say, you know what, use our stadiums, use so that we can bring people in, get the vote out, have, you know, more polling places. I'm hearing 
conversations about that or already actions about that of taking some of these giant places and setting them up as vaccine sites? Is that what we need to kind of really get it out into the system? And at the same time, that makes me a little nervous about large groups of people that might have COVID going out there for the vaccine. And just got about 50 seconds and then we'll come back and talk some more. Oh, no, actually, well, we I'm really, sorry, we're, we're, we can keep going, my, my bad. <laughs> okay. okay, well, we, we really need a coordinated effort. Um, and of course, we've, we have an allocation strategy around healthcare workers, around the elderly in, in uh, congregate housing facilities, the staff of those facilities. Um, but what we've seen, unfortunately, is that the, the vaccines are moving to the states and out to places where people can be immunized too slowly, uh, too unevenly. Uh, we've, we've seen, unfortunately, the potential for vaccines uh, to expire uh, without being used. That's a great loss. Uh, and, of course, we have to remember that with these two messenger RNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, Pfizer in particular, has very challenging distribution uh, uh, features because it has to be kept super cold, below minus 80. Right. Uh, the Moderna right. vaccine is a little easier to use, but they're both challenging to use, and, and they really do require uh, very careful management. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, you know, what we have is not a national strategy, but 50 different state strategies. Right. And many of the governors are going in their own way. You saw that Florida made the decision not to uh, prioritize healthcare workers and instead go with the elderly, but without preparing. So right. long lines and people waiting overnight, that's not a national strategy. So my gut says nothing's gonna change until we have a new administration. What are your hopes that from day one, Joe Biden and team do in terms of getting this out to people? Well, the incoming administration, Biden-Harris, does have a national strategy on COVID. It's been up on their website. They have articulated that this is the principal priority. They're putting together a great team. Dr. Fauci, of course, is going to stay on as a senior scientific advisor. Uh, the CDC director who's proposed, Rochelle Walensky, is an outstanding leader. Um, so I think we're, we're very optimistic that this is an administration that's going to let the science lead uh, and that is going to try and have a national strategy. But they're inheriting a rollout that's already underway and problematic. And I think it's going to be really challenging to streamline this, to make it coherent, uh, and, and to get it working. The president-elect is committed to 100 million people being vaccinated in the first 100 days. So that's not 100 million doses. That's 100 million immunizations. About 50 million people with these two-dose vaccines. Is that realistic? So that's a chance. Uh, well, it was looking realistic when he made <laughs> the campaign promise. With the rollout right now, I think it's going to be enormously challenging. When, when do you feel like things start to get normal? When do we start to be able to kind of reopen life as we know it and love it? We will have about 50 million vaccines uh, available, so enough for 25 million people by the end of this month. February, March, and April are likely to still be periods where we have uh, more people who want to be immunized than we have vaccines. What we're thinking is that by June or July of 2021, we will have enough vaccine for every American who wants one. Uh, and that that is going to mean that really by the end of the second quarter of 2021, we should really be seeing uh, a change in life getting back to normal. We have trials uh, planned uh, for the pediatric vaccine. Mm -hmm. Right now, we only have one. That's the, the um, Pfizer vaccine that can go down to age 16. 
But we also really need to do that work uh, and be sure that we have vaccines for children and infants, for pregnant women, for lactating women. So we still have some work to do, uh, but, but the fall of 2021 should look a lot different than the spring. Dr. Byer, one unfortunate element that we've seen with the vaccine rollout has been skepticism of the American population. Not everybody, but yeah. people who say, including healthcare workers, that they don't want this vaccine. Have you received a vaccine yet? I have not because I am a, a researcher and I don't do direct patient care. At Hopkins, we're we're not prioritized. Um, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that that I'll be uh, in one of the next groups, uh, and and I'm expecting to get get a vaccine probably in February. How do we fix the messaging here? I think one thing that's very encouraging. You may have seen there was a recent uh, Kaiser Family Foundation poll that showed that um, vaccine acceptability, at least in that poll, was up around seventy percent. That's better than it's been. So we're going in the right direction. Uh, I think it's very important for healthcare workers, for political leaders like Biden and Harris, who both have been publicly immunized, uh, to step up and, and model the behavior that we want to see. We also, I'm working on the COVID vaccine prevention network. We've had a big faith-based initiative to try and address these issues for African-Americans in particular. That community, unfortunately, seems to have some of the highest rates of vaccine hesitancy and skepticism. Uh, and, uh, and we're working hard with, for example, African-American physicians uh, networks to try uh, and improve uh, people's positive sense of, of the benefits of these vaccines. They have very high efficacy, 94 and 95 uh, percent. They're very safe as far as we can see so far. We're following everybody in the trials who's been in these vaccine trials for up to two years to look at longer-term safety. But uh, I think, you know, what, what we're hopeful about is that as more and more people get immunized, uh, the folks who are saying right now, I'm not ready, uh, we'll, we'll move toward getting immunized. Um, for most Americans, uh, it's going to be probably May or June before they really can mm. just decide if they want a vaccine. So, uh, so the folks who are hesitant should wait and look. But, but uh, yeah. as we're seeing, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say this, and I hate to do this in like our last couple of minutes, but there is a story on the Bloomberg. It's an opinion piece, but it asks the question, who's on the hook if vaccines go wrong? And it's basically, you know, given the breakneck pace of production, there are very few answers about what manufacturers and governments are ultimately responsible for. God forbid something should go wrong. And forgive me, because I'm an optimist and I, I believe in the science of this vaccine. But as you said, you guys, the medical community, will we're going to be tracking people longer term to see if there is any longer term impacts because we still don't to be fair to be honest we still don't know well that's right and and we need we are accumulating safety data from the people in the trials and the people who've been immunized every day uh, we have a vaccine adverse events reporting system that the cdc is managing um, certainly everybody in the healthcare systems who are getting immunized are being tracked through those health systems uh, and we need to follow this very carefully I think it's important to remember that there are always some risks associated with any medication, any vaccine, any biomedical intervention. We all know that. Right. Nothing is zero risk. But the flip side of that is the risk of getting COVID. Right. We're learning more and more about this disease is that, that you know, this, this has the potential to really uh, kill you or alter your life. 
I was having that conversation actually with someone this morning. And as Chris Rock told Gail King on CBS, he's like, I take Tylenol every day. Do I know what Tylenol is in? All I know is it fixes my headache. I'm okay with taking the vaccine is basically what he said. Um, Dr. Byer, thank you so much. Stay safe. Be well. Dr. Chris Byer, professor of epidemiology, public health also, and human rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. He's also the senior scientific liaison at the COVID Vaccine Prevention. Network. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, this wasn't the game plan, but it really had to be. I'm talking about this week's cover story by Bloomberg Business Week, which after yesterday's mob protest and storming of the U.S. Capitol, the cover is about the trashing of American democracy and new low in American politics. Let's bring in more on the significance and impact of what should have been a normal routine process of Congress signing off on a presidential election. It was anything but. Here's Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green on the phone in Washington, D.C., who we talked with a bunch yesterday uh, through all the craziness. Josh is also author of The Devil's Bargain, uh, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Nationalist Uprising. Also with us, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the remote access from Brooklyn. Joel, the cover, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I feel like the picture you guys have in the cover is worth a lot more than that. Yeah. And, and just to give you a sense of uh, kind of what, what, what we go through at a magazine is, you know, <laughs> Wednesday, we, we tend to, we, we ship the covers, uh, ship a lot of the magazine on Wednesday. We were ready to go with a completely different cover. And I actually released that file and then immediately clawed it back when we witnessed what was happening in D.C. Because it's like, how could you not talk about what was happening in yeah. the nation's capital? And, and um, Josh actually had nothing to do with what we ended up doing in the issue because everything unfolded so quickly and we are on such a tight um, timeline. And, you know, the, the trashing of American democracy seemed exactly like the right line to use. Um, main cover line was was new low and and it really felt that way and still feels that way way today so i think we made the right call and who knows if the world will ever see that other great idea uh hopefully they will but the reason i wanted to bring josh on the program today is just because i think you know because of devil's bargain and and he sort of his his knowledge of, of bannon it gave us a really early sense of how how real the Trump effect was going to be. And, and so, and ditto the cover story he had a couple of months ago on the coming out of the, the election of uh, Trumpism is here to stay. So, so Josh, like, help me understand, do you think Trumpism is still here to stay? Yeah, I, I certainly think it is. And I think yesterday was a kind of an ugly reminder of its enduring power with a not insubstantial uh, group of hard right wing Republican voters. Um, you know, as as we see things here in Washington, you know, a lot of times elected officials, uh, Republican senators and House members go along with this this sort of thing and, and indulge Trump out of a sense of you know careerism and opportunity and, uh, you know, a, a desire to advance within the party and a fear of of their own Republican voters. And I think yesterday illustrated the danger in indulging this sort of thing and indulging Trump. Um, but, you know, to me, one of the most horrifying things we witnessed was that after this violence that left four people dead, uh, the, 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 the Capitol overrun for the first time since 1812, was that a majority went ahead anyway afterwards once Congress reconvened in the middle of the night uh, and objected to Joe Biden's victory. So I think that that shows you that 
even after this kind of mayhem, violence, death, terrorism, um, that Republicans or a certain segment of them are still going to march in line behind Donald Trump and whatever it is that he wants to do. Uh, and I think that's a good indication that there isn't going to be a clean break on January 20th and that, that the country isn't going to be able to move beyond Trump, certainly not the Republican Party. Josh, we, we had you joining us yesterday live on the radio as this was taking place on the in the Capitol um, for your immediate reaction, for your immediate analysis. But I'm wondering with, you know, almost 24 hours at this point to sort of think back on on what happened yesterday. Um, what's the damage that's been done? No, I don't think we can begin to really know the answer to that question. I mean, you know, part of the damage, I think, is is psychological and knowing that our country is susceptible to this sort of thing. I think part of the damage um, comes to the reputation of the United States and the world. I mean, it's certainly tarnished and and diminished our standing even further uh, in the the eyes of allies and and, and foreign countries. I mean, one of the one of the things you saw yesterday was uh, the leaders of, of autocratic or dictatorial countries uh, essentially trolling the United States by releasing official mm-hmm. statements, you know, expressing concern over the violence, death and mayhem in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, it, it, it's just remarkable and, and, and almost unthinkable that this could have happened here. Uh, and then we still have two weeks to go. And, and, you know, who knows? I mean, every day things seem to get worse in Washington. You, you don't think it can get worse. And then you turn on the news and see people overrunning the Capitol, uh, fighting, being killed. Um, so, you know, in, until Trump is out of office on January 20th, which I do think will happen eventually, right. um, you know, we, we really don't have the kind of distance and perspective that we need to to answer that question. How significant is it that um, social media companies have intervened, <laughs> at, at least some of them? Slightly. You know, in all seriousness, I think that is a really big deal. I mean, I think it's commendable what Twitter did, freezing Donald Trump's account and Facebook, essentially kicking him off the platform until he leaves office. Twitter has been Donald Trump's main channel of communication, not just with his own followers, uh, but with the media, with the culture, with cable news. When he tweets, people react, reporters react, we have to react. He can attack people. He can attack other Republicans. Uh, you know, a lot of official Washington was really uh, kind of marionette strings from Trump's Twitter account from, you know, the day he started running for office, certainly was throughout his presidency. And by taking away that platform from him, I mean, it, it really does feel like things have quieted down in the last 12 to 18 hours as Trump has been off Twitter. You can only imagine what he would be tweeting and doing and commanding uh, as, you know, Mike Pence turned his back on him as Congress. Uh, made official Joe Biden's victory in the presidential race, and the fact that he wasn't able to kind of fulminate and, and encourage more of this violence, uh, I think is a good thing. And I think Twitter ought to, ought to kick him off for good. Yeah, it's interesting. We talked to um, Josh that Twitch, which is a streaming service owned by Amazon, they've suspended uh, Trump's channel as well. And I guess they're going to do that until January 20th and then reassess Uh, That's their word, uh, the situation. Hey, Josh, just quickly, uh, just got about 30 seconds. What do you think will ultimately maybe be the role of Donald Trump after he leaves the White House? Is he kingmaker? Is he uh, media star? Does he go away to Florida and be quiet? Just quickly. 
Well, I'm sure he won't be quiet, but <laughs> I, I have to say I do have some doubts about his ability to be kingmaker after what we've seen. He yeah. will still be an important voice in the party. A lot of people uh, like Senator Josh Hawley will be trying very hard to win his approval and the approval of supporters. Uh, but I don't think we can answer that yet until we okay. see you know, how things shake out and how much worse it gets. Always good to check in with you. Thank you so much. Josh Green, National Correspondent, Bloomberg Businessweek. Joel Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out that cover story. It's pictures and it's a timeline about the story of really our history here and our questions of democracy. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. Yes, on indeed. Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. The Thursday edition of Bloomberg Business Week brought to you by SEI. Imagine your asset management firm's operational infrastructure as a competitive advantage. Let SEI show you how at SEIC.com slash IMS. This is Bloomberg. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. This mob was in good part President Trump's doing, incited by his words, his lies. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. We will be part of a history that shows the world what America is made of. We will not bow to lawlessness or intimidation. My colleagues, it's time to move on. Well, you hearing there the voices of Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Chuck Schumer, Senator Mitt Romney, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Those lawmakers reacting last night to the chaos in Washington, D.C. after Congress resumed deliberating the Electoral College certifications on Wednesday evening. Right. It is done. but uh, And this is ending two months of failed challenges by uh, Joe Biden's predecessor. We're talking about Donald Trump. And then, of course, we know ultimately exploded into violence at the U.S. Capitol yesterday. So we watched it all unfold in real time. And I'm guessing so did our next guest, Chris Liu, friend of the show, back with us. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, worked up on Capitol Hill. He's someone who has worked in each of the branches of the U.S. government. He's senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, was uh, also on uh, Barack Obama's transition team. He was the executive director. He's on the Biden transition team, and he joins us on the phone in Charlotte's. Virginia. Uh, you got to stop with all your accomplishments, Chris, because <laughs> now we only have time. 30 seconds left. Sorry. <laughs> um, first of all, nice to have you here. Happy New Year. What a rough start to the new year. Our democracy yesterday tested really big time this week. How did you see it? You know, as somebody who spent a dozen years on Capitol Hill uh, in both the Senate and the House, I mean, it was shocking, but that's even sort of an understatement. The U.S. Capitol is one of the most secure facilities in the country. You know, it's, uh, it's protecting our uh, highest elected leaders. Uh, it's where deliberations happen in the House and Senate. I mean, and to see those people storming in as easily as they apparently did, causing the kind of havoc, disrupting the proceedings, um, it's, you know, we keep saying this is not who we are as Americans, but it clearly is. And I think it's going to require a lot of soul-searching about how we got to this point. How does the country move on from this? Where do we go from here? You know, I think um, the president-elect, Joe Biden, sent, sent the right message yesterday. You know, he, he, he's continuing to talk about healing. Uh, you know, really going back to the beginning of his campaign, that this was a battle for the soul of our nation. Uh, I think he is going to try to obviously take the temperature down on the rhetoric. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that he's going to control both the House and Senate. He's going to, he has indicated he's going to continue to work for bipartisan solutions. 
Um, but I think we need to recognize that there is a very strong anti-government under, and it's not just anti-government, anti-all institutions uh, undercurrent in our country right now, and, and that just continues to fester, and that's been a long-term problem in this country. You know, we just talked, Chris, about the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine this week, and this wasn't their plan, but after yesterday, they had to do a quick change because there was no doubt about it what the cover had to be. And in big letters, it says new low, and underneath it, it says the trashing of American democracy, and it shows the Capitol uh, and the protesters just climbing the walls and all the way up. You said something, though, that really resonated. You said, clearly, this is who we are as Americans, these protesters. You know, it does feel like half the country is this way. You know, a lot of people thought there was fraud in the election. Uh, There's division even within each of the parties in terms of some of the younger members, the older members, you know, the Republicans, the same thing. And I do wonder, how do we kind of bring it all together so we go back to a time where people did cross uh, across the aisle or reach across the aisle and actually get things done that benefited more Americans, most Americans? You know, look, I, I, I watched uh, the remarks yesterday, both before and after the violence. Uh, I was struck by Senator McConnell's comments where I think he really appropriately talked about that there was no election fraud. This was not a particularly close election. You know, it is now the time to move on. And while I can applaud Senator McConnell and, and other Republicans who gave statements like that yesterday, one wonders why those statements were not made two months ago. We, right. we have known for two months who this election results are. And I think we do need to be careful. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not being partisan, yeah. but this is not a both sides are wrong. I mean, we have a president, sitting president, who even before Election Day has said if he does not win, it will be because of fraud and has continued to perpetuate this idea. And so it's not surprising that there is a significant percentage of people in this country that believe there's fraud, notwithstanding the fact that the Department of Homeland Security uh, Mr. Trump's own former attorney general have all said there is no fraud. This has now been litigated in over 60 court cases around the country. So, you know, look, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 there's an underlying distrust in government that is being um, exploited by, you know, elected officials. You've got uh, a bifurcated, not even bifurcated, you've got a, a diverse media uh, atmosphere where people can watch whatever news they want. There's, there's a lot going on here. I think Joe Biden can be part of the solution, but he won't be the entire solution. Do you think part of the solution is invoking the 25th Amendment for the president's remaining days or impeaching the president, as lawmakers have suggested? I, I guess I'd say this. Uh, I do think there needs to be a strong message sent that this is not acceptable conduct. Um, but we are only left with 13 days left. That, that being said, I mean, you know, we have seen just over the course of 24 hours what one person's words can do. And I go back to, you know, what Joe Biden said yesterday in his remarks. He said, you know, the president's words matter. At their best, they can inspire, and at their worst, they can incite. And that's what happened. And so I think we should all brace ourselves for the next 13 days, um, because I I don't, you know, I think as fewer and fewer guardrails exist around this president, he, he remains a very unpredictable and potentially dangerous person right now. So Chris, I do want to ask you about kind of the role of all of us in being responsible citizens, responsible members of the media. I know we try to be very careful here. We are careful at Bloomberg, but I do wonder, there was so much coverage of everything and anything that 
Donald Trump did and his team did. And I think we also kind of struggled with it sometimes, whether it was really news uh, and whether or not, you know, who, our responsibility in kind of fueling some of the fury. Yeah, you know, and I think this is a legitimate uh, concern that people really need to examine. And it goes back to the 2016 presidential campaign when you had networks that would run Trump's rallies, you know, from start to finish, giving him a disproportionate amount of airtime, but also at the same time airing a lot of, you know, the falsehoods that we have all gotten used to now. And the theory is always, well, you know, it's news. Well, just because it's news or might be newsworthy doesn't mean it needs to be put out there. And, and how do you properly re- refute the, 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 the false allegations um, in that? And how do you do that in real time? And then it continues all the way to, you know, whether it's, you know, his press conferences he did early uh, in his administration or the, the COVID daily briefings that he did through mm-hmm. last uh, spring and summer, uh, where he was just dispensing harmful misinformation. And then obviously what we've seen just in the last 24 hours with, you know, Facebook and Twitter both suspending him, um, you know, wh- wh- what is what is the role of social media as well? So, uh, you know, it, we've never had a president who has pushed the limits on disinformation as much. And, you know, the theory had always been, you know, what the president says matters and needs to be covered. Maybe that shouldn't be the rule going forward. Yeah. Chris, you're you're on the president-elect's transition team. And I'm, I'm wondering how you would characterize the, the transition thus far and the communication that the team has had with the Trump administration to ensure this this peaceful transfer of power that the president overnight committed to. You know, I would say throughout the transition, at least the parts that I have seen, um, the cooperation has been good. Uh, I have been leading the Department of Labor uh, transition team. We've had great cooperation from um, our counterparts um, within the Trump administration at the Department of Labor. But I know that there had been problems at other departments, like the Department of Defense, uh, the uh, Office of Management and Budget. You know, and we have today, um, this morning, the president putting out a statement committing to the orderly transition. Well, he's doing that 13 days before Inauguration Day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's about two months too and, late. And, and I think also about. there had been elements that weren't peaceful. Exactly. You know, and, and I think, you know, when you are talking about um, the handover of the largest organization in the world, the federal government, you want absolute cooperation from day one. And that's exactly what we got in 2008 from the outgoing Bush administration. And that's not a political thing. It's just when you're talking about issues of national security and homeland security, and now we've got a, uh, a pandemic, you want to make sure that, the, that, that it's as seamless a transition as possible on January 20th. One thing that does stand out for me, and having watched kind of into the wee hours, the process last night, um, despite we know that the electoral college votes, they were confirmed, and President-elect Joe Biden, yes, he and Kamala Harris, they will be in the White House come January, there were still, um, of the 262 Republicans in the House and Senate who were present, 146 146 supported one or both of the objections in terms of that electoral college vote. That number to me was staggering, Chris. And I do wonder for someone who has worked in the Capitol, you know, worked within the halls of Congress, you know, that divide, like, where did we, where, how did we get there? And how do we kind of get back to a kinder, gentler way? Yeah. Uh, we, we probably don't have enough time in the segment to talk about how we got there, but I will say, <laughs> 
I was disappointed by that as well. I mean, I was watching the Senate proceedings, Mm -hmm. and I was heartened by the fact that, you know, most of the people who said they were going to object pulled down their objections. But, boy, when you had that vote on the House side Mm -hmm. with, like, 120, 130, those people, they were as if nothing that had happened in terms of the afternoon, the chaos, the violence, had happened at all. And I think simply with their votes, they continue to perpetuate this idea that the election was somehow stolen. And I think that is a problem. And, and the truth is, because of, you know, gerrymandering in this country, because of the way that uh, people process news, these 120, 130 people uh, on the House Republican side will probably never suffer any political consequences for that vote. In fact, they might even be rewarded yeah. uh, for that vote. Yeah, it's pretty staggering. Hey, 40 seconds left here since you're working uh, with the transition within the Labor Department. From the get-go, what do we need to do to help out the, the labor market going forward? Well, we need to get our arms around the pandemic because unless we can get that under control, we're never going to have a steady uh, economic recovery. And, um, you know, and obviously we're going to need more economic relief when this current round um, expires in March. All right, Chris, going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Happy New Year again, and really appreciate you weighing in on so much for us. Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. We mentioned ED of uh, Barack Obama's transition team, and he is uh, a member of the Biden transition team, specifically in the Labor Department. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic. And if I look at the equity trade, we've got the S&P and the NASDAQ pretty much at uh, highs of the day. We're up about 1.6%. Charlie mentioned that on the S&P, 2.7% higher on the NASDAQ. Dow up 261 points, so quite a rally or a decent rally considering kind of all the turmoil we've been dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a key theme here. We talked both to Kriti Gupta and uh, Sonali Basak, or Shonali Basak earlier in the mm-hmm. day. Um, what, like gives? what gives? Yeah. What gives? What gives? Let's see what Walter Todd has to say about that. Time for the drive to the close. Let's bring him in. He is Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Walter, Happy New Year. Nice to have you here. And I was talking with Greg Valliere yesterday after the closing bell uh, out of D.C. And despite even the, you know, turmoil and the breaching of the Capitol yesterday, you know, we saw stocks move higher, even though they finished off their highs yesterday. Nonetheless, we had a rally. The markets didn't come undone. How do you make sense of kind of the disconnect of what we've been seeing in Washington versus what we continue to see in the financial markets? It's like one disconnect after another, to be quite honest. Yeah, well, good afternoon, Carol and Tim. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, it was, you know, I have a TV outside my office. And so, you know, watching the Bloomberg and, you know, seeing the markets move higher and then watching the scenes from the Capitol was really surreal. Um, but How do you explain you it? How do you explain yeah, it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, it, it kind of goes back to what you just mentioned in terms of the, we've had a disconnect uh, in the market, if you will, from, I don't want to say from reality, but certainly from the underlying economic, you know, fundamentals for really the duration of 2020. And that's really, Kind of one of the you know strange things about this market. It's all it's been 
all about the anticipation of getting beyond this and the reopening. And then, and then we got the vaccine news in November, and we really started to, to amp up after that. So I, it, it appears to me that the market is just kind of looking through everything, even a you know attempted uh, coup, as some have said um, yesterday. So it, it is you know quite incredible. But I think at the end of the day, it comes back to liquidity. And the Fed kind of holds the keys of this market, and as long as they are going to allow, you know, the liquidity to continue, which it, from all the comments we've gotten over the past several months, that appears to be the case. I mean, that that's what's going to continue to drive this market higher. What are what are in investors signaling right now about a uh, Congress uh, and a White House that's fully controlled by by Democrats, albeit you know in the Senate with a, a ever so slim majority, the slimmest of majorities. Yeah. Well, since the election, what you've seen is really a rotation into more kind of inflationary type sectors or cyclically oriented sectors. And it's not that you've seen necessarily a move out of tech, but it's been more subdued in some of the growth areas. And we see this back and forth. You know, yesterday was definitely very a cyclical rotation. Today, it's back to more of the growth in tech and healthcare and so forth. So I think you can own both, but definitely the market kind of signal is you talked about rates in the last segment with Dave Wilson. The rates are moving higher. That's going to favor you know some of these areas like financials and industrials and materials, and that's what you're seeing uh, for the past several months. Walter, okay, I have to go back for a moment because we've had a lot of conversations. I was just thinking about what you said. You know how some people said an attempted coup yesterday. I mean, who would have thought like those kinds of words would be coming out of anybody's mouth? Oh. So like yeah, how? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, you know, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And uh, you know, I used that back in March. Mm-hmm. And I think it's appropriate for this week as well, uh, because you know, a lot is going on right now. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you say that because um, you know, it's not necessarily just a one-day thing. And I say that in that the world was watching us. We've had a lot yep. of stories on the Bloomberg about China saying, well, you know. U.S., you're kind of hypocrites because look what's going on in your country, and you're often critical about what's going on in ours. And I do think about the heightened tensions that will continue probably between U.S. and China. So I do wonder what this means potentially for the U.S. economy ultimately, and then how it plays its way into investments. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly the credibility of the U.S. You know, took a hit yesterday, but you could make the argument it's been taking a hit for, for a while here um, on the global stage. And I think the real question or answer to your question is really going to be kind of what comes next and how the uh, incoming administration kind of deals with this and with the world uh, from a trade policy and, and other aspects. And so I think, you know, if, if, if you kind of look at Biden's history, um, it should be a, a more predictable, at least, uh, kind of situation there, which would be, gosh, you know, boring would be great uh, these days. So I, I think it can, we can, we can get through it without a, a, a big hiccup if if we get some follow through from the from the next administration and kind of a transition from where we've been the past several years. Is there any indication to you that that's looking like it's going to happen? Well, I, all you can do is kind of look at, um, kind of listen to the words of, of what uh, some of the incoming administrations have said and kind of look at the history of maybe their policies in the past and, and, and what they've done, um, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, uh, you know, not 
implementing new tariffs on uh, on countries, you know, that would be a start uh, in terms of kind of rejoining uh, the world stage, and uh, well, I think it would be helpful. Hey, Walter, just quickly, does it make you nervous that we're going to have, even by a slim margin, but you've got Democrats basically with a clean sweep, you know, in terms of um, Congress and, of course, as well as the White House. Does it make you nervous? Because, you know, I'm kind of tired of saying gridlock, good for Washington. Uh, I don't yeah. know that that's always the case. Um, it'd be nice as an American citizen to see some things get done ultimately. But how do you see it as an investor? Yeah. So I, I think the margin is so slim that it really prevents any kind of really dramatic policy changes. It does help. It will help the Democrats kind of get approvals for you know, their appointments and so forth. But I think actually you're, you're kind of getting the best of potentially the best of both worlds. That means you know more potential spending and stimulus. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the long-term implications of that. But then without maybe the, the big tax increases and some of the other uh, more extreme policies that have been discussed in the uh, election cycle. All right. We're going to leave it there. Hey, Walter, thank you so much. Happy New Year once again. Walter Todd, Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates, on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.